Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. How are you doing this week? Doing good. Lots, lots of news in the world happening. We got some great type news happening. Very excited to share all the great links that we have. Super practical things we're sharing this week. That's true. I was excited about how we had a bunch of practical articles. There's like some fun stuff mixed in, but that's going to be really fun. And what in general are we talking about at the end this week? So our nerd alert is going to be about questions to ask clients when you're a freelancer. So let's say a new client comes in your inbox, slides into that inbox of yours and (laughs) says, you know, hey, I'm looking for a freelancer to do this project. Do you think you could help? There's some more you know, practical questions that we always ask, but what are the best questions that will set you up for success? And it's good because uh, I think last week had a lot of good reception when we were talking about freelance related stuff. And you and I both have plenty of experience that I think is going to be fun to share what we know in trying to help anybody who might be dipping their toes into the freelance game. Exactly. Definitely going to be excited to jump into that. Before we get there, we have some great links. So let's start with our first one. The step-by-step guide for pairing fonts. Um, And this is from the Learn UI Design blog. I am actually a huge fan of this. This is a guy named uh, Eric Kennedy who makes an online course about UI design. And he always has great, super in-depth articles like this. Yeah, I mean, it's so robust. I was surprised. I was just like scrolling and then I kept scrolling and then I kept scrolling. (laughs) And there's some great tips in here. Some of the classic tips for looking for body copy and looking for, you know, display typeface. He does these great annotations. He does these like don't and do graphs. And then he annotates why you shouldn't make your type look like this or why this is great for making your type look like this. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's just really practical tips thrown within it and he also like uses case studies of other sites that he thinks are doing something successful Hmm, cool and i think in this there's a lot of really good suggestions for fonts to look for too some you know quite a few fonts that i don't see recommended in web design stuff frequently but are great fonts like classics like uh scala and scholar Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. minion pro Mm -hmm. And uh, DIN is something I don't see enough of on the internet. I've always wanted to do like a league DIN. Oh, that'd be great. I remember when I was in college, I remember my type professor said all the new type students want to use DIN because it always carries a contemporary feel to it. Because I think for our type class, we were only allowed to use 14 typefaces for our first semester. Oh, one of those. One of those. One of those boot campy classes. (laughs) And Din was one of them. This is cool because this article is extremely detailed and very precise in its suggestions of like pointing to this spot like you were talking about and saying this doesn't work because and this particular piece does work because. Yeah. So definitely check it out, guys. There's going to be something new for everyone, even for me. So that was really an exciting thing to see included. Our next group of tips for designing is from UX Collective, and it's their three practical cheat sheets for designing attention-grabbing UIs. And so we admit they're not necessarily cheat sheets, but they are helpful tips that I, I don't hear often enough that I thought was helpful. I think it's funny. They still refer to above the fold. And yeah. under the fold. Can you explain that? Because I think you explained that to me like this past year. 
Well, so above the fold is a term meaning basically what is immediately viewable when you first see a thing, a product. It came from newspaper design where it was literally mm -hmm. folded. And so mm -hmm. the, it would be sitting on the cart that you'd buy the newspaper from and you'd only see the top half of the newspaper. So you had to make mm -hmm. that the most interesting and engaging and well-designed and thing to pull you in. It carried over to websites for the same reason. You go to a, a new website and your browser is only so big. And so you want to make that section that you first see as engaging as possible to reel you in. It's a little tougher on the internet because above the fold could mean any variety of, of sizes. Yeah, especially in our responsive world that we live in. Right, um, but you know, there's at least some general standards to it of like laptops generally only come in one of four or five sizes so you can like guess still yeah so they talk about that concept of making sure your most important content is quote-unquote above the fold they talk about the law of closure and the illusion of completeness and they also talk about fonts and how your font family is super important to what you're designing because again most of the web <laughs> is still text you know i have to admit though that illusion of completeness which, you know, I think if we had to summarize the sort of hinting that something is just off screen, I find myself using that a lot because I sort of accidentally discovered this law. I've never heard of it, you know, described as, as like the illusion of completeness before, but I've found myself doing that before where there's five items in a list and I sort of, without thinking, design it so you can see the first four items and you don't know that there's a fifth item mm. unless you space them so that something's just a little bit cut off. Got it. Oh, okay. So these are actually really good tips. The way that this article is written, I think you need to read it two or three times. Yeah, it's, yeah, because I just kind of got that law. Um, yeah, it's like not illusion of super detailed in the writing of it. Yeah. But I think if you, you know, do a good pass through and then you like actually inspect the images that they're trying to describe it with and that kind of thing, there's actually some very useful tips in here. Yeah. Something a little bit more in my territory is our next article. <laughs> and that is from AIGA's blog, Ion Design. And it is chiseled in stone, cut into wood. Jaeger is a typographic tribute to craftsmanship. So this is a super funky typeface. It's from VJ Type is the foundry, but that comes out of the Parisian creative studio, Violon et Jérémy. Oh, that was... <laughs> I was, yeah, I'm impressed. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Which I'm familiar with because they do really cool type work. I mean, I definitely would check them out in their own right. I have been following them on Instagram for a few years and I'm always impressed by kind of like new innovative ways they're using letter forms. This Jaeger is really hard to describe, but it does remind me of chiseled stone cut letter forms mixed with a Tuscan typeface, which mm -hmm. we recently talked about on our Instagram. I can totally see that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I think this I is think interesting. I mentioned to you at the beginning here that I accidentally found this font last night on Behance looking for fonts for my own personal site. I was like, oh, that's a neat one. So I woke up this morning to Hugo finding this on Ion Design, and I was like, oh, I just saw that. And it's it's no surprise. I'm, I'm kind of interested to see, like, why they decided to publish on Behance and maybe like I'm not as familiar with Behance as other people are, but I'm curious how that platform has risen for new typefaces and maybe not from like traditional boundaries. Mm, I think it's kind of the dribble of the new age. 
Yeah, it might be. It's, um, it's a little bit I'm, of a secret underdog at the moment. Right? I mean, that means I have to update my Behance because I used that in college before I paid for a website. Oh, but interesting. It's like there's some legit things on there. Anyway, so this is typeface comes in several ways. It, they create it in all lowercase, actually, for a particular client, the Musée des Arts Décoratifs. So they created it for custom posters and brochures and signage, but they got so much love that their fans were asking them to release it commercially. And so then they ended up creating upper and lower case and they have multiple weights and it's really like nothing I've ever seen before. I really enjoy the upper case. I think that it feels a little bit more uniform than the lower case and it has so much character packed into it. Mm, I agree. I agree. Although I'll admit like, them writing out Jaeger in the beginning. That tiny word there looks beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And their specimen they created for Behance is also beautiful. They did it very artfully and like kind of mixed analog paint in with this like very kind of digital look of the specimen. So I always appreciate a good specimen. Totally. Our next one, also for type lovers like me out there, talks about HBO's Perry Mason's title cards. Which I always love a good title card article. I <laughs> think I follow I follow a newsletter called The Art of the Title, and I get like emails about new title cards. Do you? Follow I them? love that blog. I start. I mean, I went to school for motion graphics, so this was initially like yeah. the industry I was going to get into. And I remember one of my teachers was the guy who started Imaginary Forces. Oh yeah, and they did Stranger Things, right? I think they did Stranger Things. They've done like a bunch of superhero movies and television shows that we probably all know. And so I, I love getting to read behind the scenes about like some of the decisions that went into even especially this because it's simple, right? Like it's it's not crazy. Mm-hmm. It's not super CGI and like really flashy, but it's also really well done. Yeah, I mean, I it's just beautiful type. And I even threw on an episode of Perry Mason before this just to see how it interacts with the motion because the type is static, but it's masked in a certain way, or I think they call it rotoscoped in a way where people can move in and out of the type seamlessly. And it was all added in post. Interestingly enough, the whole series was shot and the title slides were designed right at the beginning of coronavirus pandemic that's That's also interesting that like how recent as it was and how that was more or less a constraint i don't think they were going to edit and create new scenes but um it was kind of interesting talking about the story of how they came to be and there's some there's some really interesting details at the bottom of perry mason that title slide that you'll see in this article you'll see tiny text and it's actually the copyright text because they wanted to make it seem authentic to los angeles at the time of this TV show taking place. And so mm-hmm. in the 30s and 40s, they would put copyright info right below the title slides. So they're trying to think of how to bring that in. And I love that detail. I do love that too. Especially, I love this time period. I love the design of this time period. Um, I'm a fanboy here. I, I can tell. I think we both got to give a few episodes a try. <laughs> I need to watch it. I've heard it's great. I think this is a good time to say thank you to our sponsors. And who are our sponsors, Micah? This week, our sponsors, we're very excited, are our League members, which is fantastic. We try to mention every week that the League also has a membership. And when you join the membership, you get extra awesome goodies in these emails that we're talking about. 
where this week we had five nice fonts that we found. Some of them uh, were even like free for personal and commercial use. And then we also find five jobs and gigs that might be useful for, you know, starting a new design career or beefing up your design portfolio with some work. So uh, thank you to the people who have been supporting us in the league membership. And if you want to join for a short time, it is still only $5 a month because we're going to be upgrading a bunch of stuff soon. So hop in now and help support this wonderful stuff that we're doing and sharing. Wrapping it up. Generative logo design. So this comes from components.ai which is a leader in the future of artificial intelligence, it looks like. And they kind of talk about their process of making a generative logo, which I believe is using coding parameters and generating things. I am not that familiar. Yeah, I think this is kind of a new branch of design that has been secretly growing in the last few years of using computers to assist in designing creative things. And uh, so I thought this was an interestingly detailed write-up of saying, okay, we want to make a logo. I think in this case, it was actually a system of logos where they needed logos for a few different things. How do we code up something that would draw a bunch of ideas that we can then pick from and work on as designers once we have this like basis of logos that were generated. That's like a new a new faction that not a lot of people are talking about. And I think they have a lot of examples of what exactly that means. It seems like, what? I don't get that at all. But then you start seeing examples of different parameters being used in this program. And to make it even more digestible, they offer you a look into the generator that they use to create their logo. And so you can play around with it and like experience what generated logo design feels and looks like. So I thought that was actually really helpful at the end of the article. They linked to that. Did you actually play with it? Yes, I did. And like you can play with different line weights and border widths and you can move the points around. You can add or subtract points. It very much is a direct translation to what they were showing in the article. Yeah. And that's not the only way to work on generated logos but in this instance it was nice to be able to play with exactly the thing that they were talking about using yeah um, it's i think it's just a neat topic to get into of like using computers to give a designer a starting point absolutely and i think people have this like crazy fear oh we're all gonna be replaced by computers and ai but I think that we can work in tandem with ai and computers and i think maybe some things will be replaced i don't think designers or creativity can be replaced that easily. Um, So I agree. It's a great place to think of a different method and a different way to incorporate AI into your process. And lastly, with this article, it was neat how at the very end they linked to how like generative design had been used in a handful of other projects. The first of which was interesting of like, the, the city of Bologna mm. used that as their like city identity. Yeah, I definitely think we're going to be seeing more of it, like you said. And it's great that this is like, it also is a case study, but it's also educational. So yeah. I'm glad we get to share this. Our next article 
how to build a winning brand identity kit. Again, on our list of practical things, but still great tips to like have bookmarked on your browser. They talk about the importance of a color palette, color choices, fonts, like everything that's pretty typical in a brand kit, but just, you know, give you some tips to steer you in the right directions. They talk about even sounds as part of a brand, which I always find pretty interesting. I really like the tip that they mentioned as far as color palettes. They said that restaurants frequently use warm colors to encourage customers to relax and enjoy their meals. Mm. And I was like, oh, I kind of, I'm super interested in the psychology of colors and that does that just makes sense to me. That does. And uh, this is an interesting article because it's coming, I think, for more of a business kind of blog talking about design. Mm -hmm. And so the, the tips here are not super advanced design tips, but they're more targeted towards, hey, as a business, this is what you should be thinking about. Yeah. And that's a great example of picking colors from a designer's perspective is often what colors do I like? Like what colors are trending right now? What's an interesting palette to be playing with? Whereas from a business's perspective, it's what will make my customers feel the way I want my customers to feel. Yeah. Like you're probably not going to see a restaurant full of like dirty, muddy, green, dark, gray, green colors. (laughs) I actually have. I have to admit that just that that I don't know how you came up with that exact example of just like off the cuff, but that just reminds me. I was thinking of a dumpster truck. It looked like a dumpster truck. I was okay. So I was in Manchester and it was like this street dog hot dog place. Mm -hmm. And it was like built out of like crappy plywood and like tin, but it was, it was intentionally designed that way and like graffitied stencils and stuff like that. And it was really interesting because they were, I'm sure they were trying to go for like, this is like hip and different than what's what's around here. Uh, But what a weird specific example. Huh. Well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. That's your, that's how you want yourself to be seen. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you want a hot dog is from a dumpster. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Our last article is just our small Instagram post that us at the league posted last week in accordance with our podcast last week on how to price yourself. So as a freelancer, you have to figure out how to price yourself in a way that makes you feel comfortable, the client feel comfortable, but also gets you paid what you deserve. Mm. So we offer a few strategies um, and it seemed to be really well received. So we just want to share it again here for anyone that maybe missed it. Yeah, totally. Right. All right, Micah. (laughs) It's time. For our nerd alert. Nerd alert. <laughs> so this week we're talking about the great questions to ask clients when you get a new inquiry and you're about to start a new project and you know what can set you up for success. So I've been thinking about this all week. I think you know it's obvious, but it's important to note there's some really straightforward questions that you gotta ask before taking on a project. That starts with the scope of the project. It's really helpful for your pricing to understand what exactly you're doing so you're not you know getting underpaid for a job. It's important to know the timeline. If they want it done in four days and it's Friday, maybe you don't want to take on that project. Obviously, budget may or may not want to ask about that. That depends on how pricing works as well. But um, just to even get a sense of it, it's important. And those are my tactical places to start. I think you have some great questions. One of my favorite questions that you ask your client is, what is the worst case scenario for how this looks? And why would you use that as a starting point? 
I guess the context for worst case scenario there is sort of a client comes to you and says like, this is what we want. And one of, I don't like asking about budget because someone's budget is always going to be as little as I can spend. But to know how this will affect their business, assuming you know they're hiring you to try to help you with their business somehow, knowing how this project could affect their business, good and bad, gives you some better insight into what it's worth to them. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I try to ask both sides of what does a success with this project look like? Like what happens Got if it. this project succeeds? And at the same time, what's the impact if it doesn't go well? Like what does not going well look like to you? Yeah, uh-huh. I think those are definitely questions that don't obviously come to mind, especially I'm a beginner um, at the whole freelancing. I've been doing it for a year, but you've been doing it for 10 years. So you're definitely a little bit more experienced in this. And that is something that I rarely ask, but can only lead to a more clarified answer of what the client wants ultimately. Right. You know? I think that's a question clients aren't used to get getting asked. So it's probably also a little bit disarming as yeah. the person responding to that to be like, oh, well, shoot, I guess maybe this. And then it and then it kind of I think feels often a more collaborative conversation and that yeah. you care more deeply than the other person who's just like, ah, cool, it'll cost you this. I think I love that. And I definitely like want to take that advice and move it forward with my clients as well. Another really great tip that you've mentioned to me before that I hold on to dearly, that I don't even think you realize that I like really internalize this stuff. But I think you mentioned there's a method of almost convincing your client not to work with you. And that's not what it seems like I just said. But you had this great <laughs> yeah. method of interrogation that I thought was so fascinating. And I'd love to hear what that is again. Yeah, that is that is how I think about it. I think this was some of the best advice that I got too, is to try to convince your client not to work with you. And and that means like getting on the phone, them saying like, I need a new website. And you have to be like, well, why do you need a new website? What do you need the new website for? And you know, if they say, well, we get a lot of people coming to our website who don't know that we offer X, Y, Z. Then asking something like, well, is there a reason that you can't just add that to your current website? Mm -hmm. And slowly trying to chip away. It's basically a sneaky way to try to get to the bottom of why they actually need you. As opposed to doing something that is cheaper, faster, easier than hiring someone to do something custom for you. I think that interrogation method goes hand in hand with value pricing that we were talking about last week. Pricing based off of the potential revenue that you're going to be giving this client with the new product you're creating. Because if you're finding out, okay, well, why do you need this website? Well, and they say, we have someone on our team that spends 10 hours a week trying to understand how to do web design and it's just not efficient. You can ultimately also calculate, okay, so like what does it mean for a year long of someone getting paid an hourly wage doing 10 hours a week for a website and like how will my value actually like bring so much more to that and you can possibly not saying this is the best way but like price your your project based on how much revenue they'll actually be saving by not hiring this person to work 10 hours a week to do a website when it can be done in one project sometimes that can be a really awesome clue that you can add to the pile of clues that you're getting from the rest of the conversation. And sometimes too, value pricing doesn't necessarily mean money all the time. Like I was talking to a potential client recently who is interested in hiring me because 
it was it was with an agency and so i would like be a designer under them and they really wanted to be able to get this client that was trying to hire them like awesome name recognition and so that is valuable to a company it doesn't always translate directly to money it doesn't mean that that big fancy company that they'd be able to say they worked for is has a huge budget that they can necessarily pay them for this particular project but having that name on their portfolio of things is pretty valuable absolutely and so suddenly that that gives me some insight into how important this project is to them and if yeah i'm important to them completing the project then that means I'm pretty valuable that that could also affect what I suggest my prices are. Yeah. That's a good way to like reverse engineer that sort of pricing structure. And I think one thing that I definitely want to talk about before we wrap this up is having to ask the right questions to make sure you get answers from a client that translate into something you can act on. And I think that is almost like translating client speak when you ask, okay, so what colors do you think we should use for the brand? They might say, it's a brand for females, but I don't want to use pink. And then, you know, I think, okay, you could take that and run, but I think the smarter thing to do is ask, well, why don't you want to use pink? And they might actually have a calculated answer saying, our clients don't want to feel like they're being treated like Barbie dolls and 12-year-old girls, or they feel like that doesn't reflect their type of femininity they may have. And that's why I don't use pink. So now you actually have a reason as to how to direct your color palette rather than be like, so binary of like, yes, pink, no blue, or yes, blue, no green. I think that's really important that I think it's an easy misstep for us to not think about that stuff. That's a great point. That I think comes to the core of my strategy whenever I'm talking to any new potential client or any new potential project is I call it, and other people sometimes call it the five whys technique, which is another way to describe Socratic questioning of basically you say this thing and then my response is some version of why do you feel that way? Like, why is that important to you? Why is that a thing? And by, call it the five whys technique, because by the time you've gotten through five levels of, well, why is that? Hmm, well, why is that? Hmm, well, the answer to that, why is that? Once you get through, like, enough layers of asking those questions, suddenly you're getting to some, like, actual, deep, important, useful information that you can then use to, it's, it's not going to be most of the time, by the time you ask why five times, they're going to be like, oh, well, actually, you should be charging X, Y, Z. But it is going to give you some deep clues as to why they think that this is important and how important it is and what they actually want out of this thing as opposed to the first layer. And I think like that as a designer can help you really hone down your decisions, make your concepts stronger, have a better reasoning when you present to client why you chose mm. to do a thing a certain way. And they're just going to be like even more impressed by your work if they know that you were listening to their issues and problems and you're directly solving for it rather than just taking feedback that says, I like this color, I don't like this. And just like responding to that, it's just a much more deeper level that I think will just make you a more successful independent freelancer. And that listening and understanding is honestly not that different from something like therapy, where on the receiving end of that, you're like, wow, this person actually like cares about what I want out of this. 
they're not just taking what I say and doing the thing, but doing it wrong. Like they actually want to understand me. And that's like a nice bond between a client and a you. Absolutely. All these reasons are why I wanted to talk about this this week, because everyone has talent out there, but understanding the best way to go through a design process can be unbelievably helpful. You know? Mm. And I don't think that many people talk about, I mean, for me, the fact is I spend as much or sometimes more time trying to figure out what the project should actually look like and why, like doing all the prep work and interviewing the client and asking them questions and having like just simple conversations like this. I spend more time doing that most of the time than actually doing the work. Yeah, because to ultimately do the work, you need the right guidance and you need the right direction. So Yeah. So hopefully that's helpful to somebody out there who is who maybe even hasn't had a chance to think that deeply about the beginning part of a project. Because I think that sometimes comes from after getting out of the rush and paycheck to paycheck of trying to get new clients. Like that is when yeah. you sometimes start thinking, how do I do this better, more efficiently, deeper? Yeah. And so maybe that'll be some inspiration for somebody out there who's working on stuff now. And if any of you guys have other great questions that you ask clients to, you know, get better work and have a better workflow, definitely let us know. I mean, drop us a line or at the founders at the league of movable type.com. You know, we're active on Instagram. So we're definitely interested on in your input as well. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Thanks everybody also for listening in. It is fun doing this with you every week. And we will be back next week with more great links, some cool other nerdy topics, and more laughs and fun. Bye!